We're up to uh, Romans chapter 6, also the last couple of verses of chapter 5. If you have a Bible, we might like to uh, have it open to that passage. When God gave Israel the law, his intention was never that it would be a basis of establishing their relationship with him. This is what we, we looked at last, uh, on Friday night in our Bible study as we looked at uh, Moses and the law that came through Moses. Not sure where that music is coming from. Right. I've never preached a musical accompaniment before, but maybe this morning. We saw that uh, God said to the Israelites, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt rescued you from slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me and he goes through the law. He was their God by grace because he had chosen them out of all the nations to be his treasured possession. So it wasn't a means of establishing their relationship. It was a way of expressing their relationship. Obedience to the law would be the means by which the nation of Israel would know justice and prosperity and fruitfulness in the land that God was giving them. Yet the law also pointed people to know their inherent sinfulness. It taught them that they were stubborn, that they had rebellious hearts, because it contained not only instructions for right living but punishments for law breaking. And enshrined in the law were the laws to do with worship which involved the priestly ministry of sacrifice and atonement in the temple. So the law was not just instructions for life, it was also designed to drive people to see their need of mercy and to receive that mercy from their gracious, forgiving God. So we're told in 5 verse 20, the law came to increase the trespass. Uh, Paul uses the word here, the word trespass, that refers to sin being revealed through breaking a rule, breaking a law through deviating, it literally means to deviate, to turn aside from what is right. The law shows us that we are all just like Adam. As we saw last week, it shows us that we are in Adam. We are, uh, we are attached to Adam. We're hanging from his belt. And that's why Adam's one trespass, back in verse 18, his one trespass becomes our many trespasses. We see that in the law. But we're told that God's purpose in making the trespass increase through the law was so that grace should increase or abound even more. The goal of God's judgment is always grace. He's the father who disciplines his children whom he calls sons. 
We're told in, in Hebrews, uh, if you're not being disciplined by God as your father, then can you really say you're his children? Can you really say he loves you if he doesn't discipline you? We know that any child who is never disciplined by their parents goes wild. Not just because they're not taught right and wrong, but because they have an insecurity that says in their heart, do my parents really love me if they're not prepared to discipline me? In this life, judgment begins and ends with grace. God's work of judgment is always designed to bring us to himself. Now Jesus calls us to reflect this Father heart of God. And when he teaches us, do not judge, judge not, that you not be judged. Now he's not telling us here that we should never make an assessment of people's actions. Because, see a few verses later, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, we're given permission to take the speck out of our brother or sister's eye. We're given permission to make assessments, to judge, but Jesus says, don't do it with hypocrisy. Take the log out of your own eye first. And of course, uh, Jesus here is he's expounding the law and we see even in this command how uh, the law backs us into a corner because as soon as we say you're judging that person then what are we doing? We're judging that person for judging that person. Uh, no matter what we do, we are judging one another. We're assessing each other's words and each other's actions. Uh, we're judging it. Uh, Jesus says, though, there is, there is a way in which we may judge that's not hypocritical. And it's the way that the Father judges of what we see in his actions. We have to do so with the same motivation as our Father, which is the motivation of grace. Do we judge and correct because we want to prove ourselves right and the other person wrong? Or do we genuinely want them to be the recipient of grace? Do we do it to puff ourselves up or to build them up? Do we get angry at people's actions because of our love for ourselves? Or are we moved to compassion because of our love for them? The world's whole system ticks over on judgment. Don't speed because you'll get a fine. Don't question the government because you might be put in jail. Maybe not here in Australia but in other places. Don't smoke, you'll die of cancer. Don't be vulnerable and show your weaknesses because your reputation may be ruined. We live based on judgment, don't we? 
other people assessing our actions and saying, uh, here are the consequences of your actions. Jesus knows this. And so he communicates, God communicates his law to us in those terms because that's, that's how he gets our attention. So he says, do not be judged or you will be judged. In other words, if you judge, then the consequences will be that you yourself will be judged and the implication there is by God himself. That's what the law says. The law increases trespass, but why? So that grace may be about, so that our sin may be exposed and we fear it and we flee to him for mercy. The kingdom of God doesn't tick over on fear, but on grace. For someone who knows the Father through Jesus Christ, uh, their motivation is not law, is not judgment, their motivation is grace. The heart has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. All we do is motivated by grace. Both the Father's grace to us in Jesus, but also a desire to see others receive and be beneficiaries of that grace. At the time of the Reformation, when the reformers, Martin Luther and Calvin and others, were saying we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, the criticism against them was, you can't say that. If you just say we're justified freely, then that will lead people just to live however they please, and say it doesn't matter how I live because God forgives me. But what they were overlooking is that when God justifies us through faith, He also changes our heart. He changes our motivation so that the thing that drives us is no longer fear or the law or the fear of judgement. What drives us, what motivates us is grace. I wonder why then in the church generally we're so cautious to lovingly rebuke and correct one another. Grace will abound in a community where people walk side by side acknowledging their sinfulness with one another and being willing to receive correction and rebuke and encouragement as we together recognise our sinfulness and as we together live every moment, not in fear, not in judgement, but in grace. So where sin abounds... Grace abounds even more. Now in chapter 6, Paul answers two objections to this idea of living by grace. Uh, We'll look at one this morning and we'll look at the second one next week. Now the way it's put here may seem a little strange to our ears, Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Now, I don't know about you, I've I've never tried to justify my sin by saying it's good to do this sin because if I do this sin then God's grace will abound even more in my life. maybe, Maybe you do sometimes think that way. 
maybe we use it as an excuse to justify. Maybe we say it in the, along the lines of, well, it's okay because God's job is to forgive so I can be complacent, I can do whatever I like and it doesn't really matter. It's possible in Paul's time that some people were influenced by the Greek philosophy, uh, the philosophy that said uh, the most important thing is the spirit. The body is inconsequential, the body doesn't matter and they said uh, our goal in life is to escape the physical, the body, and to only live in the spiritual dimension. And so some of the philosophers actually taught that it was, it was okay, it was even a good thing to degrade your body, to, to be involved in gluttony and immorality because that was actually uh, destroying the body in order to allow you to escape into the spiritual realities. And so maybe some people were criticising Paul because they thought he was promoting these Greek ideas. But Paul has already mentioned this accusation earlier in Romans. Um, 3 verse 8 Why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. I think Paul's, uh, Paul's not, I don't think he's responding to that accusation that he's been like the Greek philosophers or saying uh, it's okay to be immoral in order that some spiritual good will come out of it. Based on Paul's answer to this objection, he seems to be dealing here more with our nature than with our behaviour. He'll deal with the issue of our behaviour in the second half of chapter 6, which we'll see tomorrow, uh, next week, when he answers the objection, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? But here he seems to be dealing with the fundamental question of whether there's any real change in the nature of a person who has been justified by faith in Jesus. Seems like he's saying if sin causes grace to abound, then wouldn't it be better if God left us in our sin, in our sinfulness, so that there can be more grace? God's glory will be shown even greater if there, there are more sinners for him to show grace to, so it's better for him to, to leave us in our sin, to leave us as we are, um, so that there can be more grace. Well, his answer is clear to that. No. Why? He says, because we have been united with Christ's death and resurrection. And so we've now died to sin and we live to God. Being united to Christ is more than just a metaphor. It's not just a figure of speech. A person who is united with Christ through faith is securely, actually united to him. As much as we are united to Adam in that we are his flesh and blood descendants, he can never not be a descendant of Adam according to the flesh. Just as much as we were united to Adam, so now we are united 
to Christ through faith. Paul says we have been baptised into Christ. Baptism is a word that we, by default, uh, we tend to always associate with the Christian rite of baptism, which we'll witness in a few weeks uh, here. But it's not, that word is not always used in that specific context of the actual uh, rite of um, water baptism. The rite of water baptism is symbolic of something that's taken place on a much deeper level, of the true, the real baptism that has happened for us. God has taken hold of us and he has baptised us into Christ. He's immersed us into all that Christ is and all that Christ has. The washing of water symbolises that the old has gone, that there is a new creature, a new person. We are a new creation. All the, all the religions of the world tell us that um, to convert to our religion, normally you do one or both of two things. You either just adopt the new set of beliefs or you work to change yourself by following a new set of rules. And so in the end, it's me who changes me to become a good person or a better person or uh, someone who knows God. Baptism into Christ tells us know that God has done that. He has taken hold of us. He has immersed us in Christ. He has made us a new person. Uh, he is making that change in our hearts and it's an actual real change. Christianity is the only faith that says when you become a Christian you are actually literally made into a new person in Christ. To be baptised into Christ means being immersed into all he achieved for us in his death and resurrection. He broke the power of sin and death by pain for our sin at the cross and he defeated death by rising from the dead and so being united to him means we now stand in the same place as him. It doesn't mean that we cease to be sinners or that we'll be able to achieve a sin-free life in this life. It doesn't mean that we won't continue to battle with sin, that sin won't always be rearing its ugly head in our lives and, and tempting us and more often than not causing us to stumble and fall. But look at verse 14 and this is the difference. Sin will have no dominion over you. Sin no longer rules us. It no longer shapes our identity. It no longer determines our destiny. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has dominion over us. And so it's the principles of his kingdom, the principles of his grace and mercy and love that now rule over us and determine our identity and shape our destiny. This has massive implications 
for us in three ways and Paul uh, points out three ways that this shapes the way we know ourselves. Our heads, our hearts and our hands. Firstly our heads in verse 11. We're told so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When you think about who you are and what you are, do you consider yourself to be one who has been united to Christ in his death and resurrection or do you think of yourself in some other way? Paul says this is how you should think. That word consider is the word logos. Uh, It's the word the Greek uh, people use to describe thinking and logic and, and the use of words. Because we are in Christ, we can never see ourselves as a solitary person anymore. We must see ourselves as someone who is with Christ, who is in Christ, who is united to Christ. Where we are, he is with us. Where he is, we are with him. As I said last week, we need to see ourselves as the Father sees us in Christ. Our mindset is so important because the way we think will shape everything else. We'll see later in Romans, in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says to us, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the way that we think. For being united to Christ means our thinking must change. Secondly, our hearts. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The heart is the centre of our affections the things that we desire. And so the heart is also the centre of our will, the decisions that we make. Our heart sets its desires or its passions on something or someone and we act accordingly by obeying that desire, that affection. Now the heart is informed by the mind. So obviously our thinking a right thinking has to come first, as Paul says, that will then flow into uh, the way we perceive ourselves and the world and then the things that we set our heart on. We're told what is right and true and good. So that's our thinking. And our heart kicks into gear and says... I want those things that are right and true and good and it moves us then to, to decide and to act. A human being will always act on what their heart tells them. The thing that you desire the most will without exception determine your actions. If I, uh, we went out there after the service 
and there were only two options out there on the table. There was some lo- there's some lovely aromatic chicken curry made with love and care by you know, Chu or Wendy or someone. There's got to be chicken curry out there, I can guarantee. There always is, and it's great. But then next to it is a lovely big bowl of aromatic dirt. Which one will you choose? Presumably, your desire for the curry will be stronger than your desire for the dirt and you'll eat the curry. Unless, of course, your desire to prove me wrong is even stronger than your desire for the curry, in which case you'll eat the dirt. Because you've still gone with what your heart's strongest desire is. So the key to seeing our lives transformed isn't to impose an external conformity. That's what the law does, tries to do. It says, act this way even if you don't want to. The key to change, to transformation, is to produce the change from within for our heart to be set on Christ and the good that is in him. So as our thinking is changed by considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, we'll increasingly see the the beauty and the desirability of a life lived in union with Christ. A life in which Christ is Lord, not sin. And our heart will follow this desire to to know Christ and to obey Christ rather than obey our sinful desires. So when sin rears its ugly head with its temptation, threatens to dominate our heart and our lives, we must simply say, no, you're not my master any longer. Christ is Lord. Christ is my master. He has defeated sin at the cross. So sin will no longer have dominion over me because Christ is far better. Thirdly, our hands. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The truth that has come to our minds has flowed down to our hearts, changed our affections, and that produces action. Paul uses the word there, members, that literally means limbs, our hands, our arms, our feet, our legs are physical bodies that actually do things in this world. What we do with our hands and our feet will either be for unrighteousness or for righteousness. Whether we like it or not, we are accomplishing something with what we do for either good or bad, for the good of others or for the harm of others for the glory of God or for our own glory. 
knowing the grace of God in Jesus Christ, knowing that we are justified through faith by his actions, not our own, what did Christ do? He offered his body, his hands and his feet to be crucified, to justify us, to bring us to the Father. When we know that we are empowered by this life-giving dynamic of grace, not the deadening fear and judgement of law, that enables us to offer our bodies, our, our members, our physical selves to God for his service. We talk about coming here Sunday morning to a church service. It's really a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? True, we, we, uh, we come here and we're called to serve one another, so there's a service that takes place for a couple of hours on Sunday morning. But really the service doesn't end with the benediction or the closing hymn or when we hop in our cars and drive out of the car park. Each day, every moment, we are called to offer our bodies, our hands and our feet to service, service of God, service of our neighbour as we seek to love our neighbours as ourselves, as we seek to proclaim the good news of the gospel, as we seek to be ambassadors for Christ in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that by your grace you have taken hold of us and have changed us. Thank you for your word that says to us that if anyone is in Christ, They are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Father, thank you that this grace, uh, this mercy, this peace with you uh, isn't just an idea but it's something that affects the totality of who we are. It shapes our mind and our thinking. It it transforms our hearts to desire uh, desire you and to desire what is good and it transforms uh, the way we live so that we can give of ourselves and our time and our energy and our resources uh, to live for your glory, to serve you and to serve those around us. Father, empower us by your spirit uh, to do this, not through our own efforts, not in the flesh, but as your spirit fills us and leads us. Father, send us out as your spirit-filled people, people who embody who Christ is uh, to this world in which we live. And we pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord over us. In his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn that reminds us uh, while we are called to act in service of our God, ultimately it's Uh, His works, not ours, that bring glory to God.